You're out of touch. I'm out of time, but I'm out of my head when I'm not continuing the Roman series on SoundCloud. And that's right, I'll be done singing that for now. Let's just jump right into the book of Romans, chapter 5, if you have a Bible handy. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. Therefore, Paul loves words like for and therefore. And that means we have to do just a tiny bit of review here. From Romans 4, 13 through 24, he's building an argument that it is not by the law that we are justified or that we receive the promises of God, but rather by faith. And he uses Abraham as the example because we are Abraham's children by faith. We who share the faith of Abraham. So, that is what the therefore is there for. I know I'm sure if you go to church every Sunday, you've heard your pastor say that corny line over and over again. But, quick 30,000 foot view, we are justified by faith and we receive God's promises through faith. So, we continue on. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, that's our passage for today, verses 1 through 11. And there is, as usual, a lot to unpack here. The book of Romans, let's never forget, yes, it's the closest thing you're going to get in Holy Scripture to a systematic theology textbook, but it's also short, because St. Paul has a habit of packing a whole lot of information into relatively small amounts of space. So let's go here to verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at that. So he says, we have been justified by faith. He doesn't add anything. I know that I've harped on sola fide a few times now in this series, but it does bear repeating. St. Paul does not add anything to justification by faith. Nothing. Not one work, not one extra thing here, not theosis or the, um, the weird concept in some... Lutheran scholastic circles of Christification. He doesn't add anything like that. 
We're justified by faith, made right with God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, since we have been justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that brings us to the question of what do we mean by peace? Where is the conflict that requires a peace as a salve, as a healing element here? It's pretty simple. We go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we see the conflict. We're sinners. We deserve punishment. The, the primary conflict between God and man is that mankind sins, and that requires justice. But it's a little bit deeper than that. Because if it was just a matter of justice, there's, there's not really a conflict there. You're a criminal awaiting punishment. But unfortunately, the, the conflict arises as something much more deep, something much more painful than that. Our sin includes our sinful nature, original sin, something that infects us deep into our bones and causes us to war against God, against everything that he says is right, everything that he says is good. To the point where when we ever look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and it says that it is impossible to please God without faith, scripture means it. Without faith in our Lord, without faith in the gospel, you cannot do anything to please God whatsoever, no matter how good or bad of a deed. You can have civic righteousness, but you can't have righteousness coram deo, facing God. All of your deeds, everything will be against God in a state of unregeneration when you are evil by nature. So with that said, that's a war. And it's a war that humanity always loses because we are not omnipotent. We are not God. God is God. He wins. And the only way anybody is going to be spared the kind of punishment for all of our sins, our war crimes, so to speak, is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. And he continues, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, he adds that. You would think that Having peace with God, having been forgiven of your sins is enough grace, is enough of a beautiful thing to be given to us by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just that. See, if you were just forgiven of your sins and nothing else, you could still die and get nothing. Maybe you wouldn't go to hell. Maybe. But it doesn't mean you're going to have eternal life. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a new body in the new heavens and new earth, enjoying the presence of the Lord forever. No, 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 no. If you're just forgiven, you're back to neutral. Your debt is paid, but there's nothing positive going for you. So, St. Paul says it is through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into Grace. What is grace? Grace is giving you the good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you the punishment that you deserve. That's the forgiveness that Christ won on the cross for us. Grace is giving you the good that you do not deserve. 
through faith in Jesus Christ, in his atonement for us on the cross, we obtain God's mercy for us, being forgiven of the sins we've committed. But through faith in Jesus, we also obtain God's grace, the rewards given to the righteous that we don't deserve. Remember, justification coming from the Greek word dekaiwo, meaning to declare righteous, means that you are declared righteous, so your sins cannot be applied to you anymore. But if you're declared righteous, you're not declared morally neutral. You are declared good and thus entitled to a good reward from the Lord our God. So he says, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's also similar here when we look at verse 25 of chapter 4. It says our Lord Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Jesus Christ is the reason you are raised from the dead, it means that your faith in him leads to the same result that he got from his righteousness because I don't have my own righteousness anymore. God has said, no, I am imputing righteousness onto that one who believes in my son. So we continue on though. Does that mean though that we should, I mean, St. Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but does that mean we should have a theology of glory? Does that mean we should expect a good life? Should we expect an easy life of total triumph over the world? And reposting from that, we read here in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There are two theologies here. Martin Luther is really, really, really on point about this. And I call this the final boss of Christian theology. It's the hardest to understand and the most unpleasant until you finally get it. There's the theology of glory, which says righteousness should result... According to all the wisdom you find in Psalms and Proverbs, righteousness results in blessing. And if Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, we should expect triumph. That is the theology of glory. We need to expect better and better, kind of a, a Whig vision of theology. But scripture doesn't really play that out. So Martin Luther talked about the theology of the cross. And let's go ahead and pull up how Luther formulated it. You know, if we're going to go ahead and actually get into the final boss of Christian theology, we'd better go ahead and read it as it was originally formulated. So you can find this on Wikipedia if you look up Theology of the Cross. Don't be scared, though. The formulation comes from Luther's works compiled by uh, Pelican and Helmut Lehmann. One. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. 2. Much less can human works, which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. 3. 
Although the works of man always appear attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. For, although the works of God always seem unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless really eternal merits. 5. The works of men are thus not mortal sins. We speak of works that apparently are good as though they were crimes. 6. The works of God, those he does through men, are thus not merits as though they were sinless. 7. The works of the righteous would be mortal sins if they would not be feared as mortal sins by the righteous themselves out of pious fear of God. 8. By so much more are the works of man mortal sins when they are done without fear and in unadulterated evil self-security. 9. To say that works without Christ are dead, but not mortal, appears to constitute a perilous surrender of the fear of God. 10. Indeed, it is very difficult to see how a work can be dead and at the same time not a harmful or mortal sin. 11. Arrogance cannot be avoided or true hope be present unless the judgment of condemnation is feared in every work. 12. In the sight of God, sins are then truly venial when they are feared by men to be mortal. 13. Free will, after the fall, exists in name only, and as long as it does what it is able to do, it commits a mortal sin. 14. Free will, after the fall, has power to do good only in a passive capacity, but it can do evil in an active capacity. 15. Nor could the free will endure in a state of innocence, much less do good in an active capacity, but only in a passive capacity. 16. The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin, so that he becomes doubly guilty. 17. Nor does speaking in this manner give cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. 18. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. 19. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have happened. 20. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Now, point 20 is going to be the biggest point here insofar as it touches on our own lives here. We'll get to that, but we'll continue here with 21. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the things what it is. 22. That wisdom that sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. 23. The law brings the wrath of God, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. 24. Yet that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded, but without the theology of the cross, man misuses the best in the worst manner. 25. He is not righteous who does much, but he who, without work, believes much in Christ. 26. 
The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. 27. One should call the work of Christ an acting work, and our work an accomplished work, and thus an accomplished work pleasing to God by the grace of the acting work. 28. The love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through what is pleasing to it. What do we mean by all that? That's 28 tenets. Well, there's a lot there to unpack. But I want to hone in here on number 20. Number 20 says, He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Why? Because the theologian of glory, the guy who says, boy, howdy, you know, we're so super duper blessed because we're counted righteous in Jesus. So look at all these blessings poured upon us. That guy doesn't get it. God does that for evil people too. It's called common grace. Uh, you know, pagans get fed. Pagans still have the sunshine on them. We Christians enjoy that kind of grace as well, but it's not because of the cross. No, do you want to see what really happens in this life for those who trust in Jesus and for those who are counted as righteous? They suffer. They suffer. That's it. <laughs> because all those things that the scriptures say regarding blessing in this life here, those come after the pain. In, in our individual lives, you will see a cycle that goes first pain, then glory. First suffering, then reward. And God is acting through that pain. He is acting through that. So when St. Paul here in Romans chapter 5 says, uh, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He's saying what Luther later on tried to encapsulate, saying, you know, look, what, what's pleasing to God, he doesn't find it in you because you're evil. And you cannot, by your own power, do anything to please God. It has to be through faith in Jesus. So God creates in you the good that he wants to see. You know, create in me a clean heart, oh God. That's God sanctifying you. And oftentimes he sanctifies us through suffering. More than that, if we want to simplify it a little bit, the Bible says good comes to those who are good, those who do good, those who love God's law, who love to do good works. Great, that's true. The righteous man is rewarded. So what happened to the most righteous man? Our Lord Jesus, who never sinned. Never sinned, didn't have original sin, didn't do anything wrong. What happened to him? He was shunned, persecuted, beaten, slandered, and then nailed to a cross. Killed by people that very much love to proclaim how much they loved God's law. Why should we expect anything different? In fact, we should rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus, as the apostles do in the book of Acts, because... That means that God wants to perfect us in that righteousness. He sees us and says, yes, this one is righteous. Let's give him the righteous guy treatment. <laughs> he has imputed righteousness 
Therefore, we expect suffering as believers. Now, the law, the law takes care of the non-believer. Non-believers suffer because they are sinners. That's just plainly the case. The law is going to do that because we are all under God's wrath. But the reason why you suffer changes when you are a believer. There's a point to it now, a telos. St. Paul here in verse 3 is telling us suffering makes you better. It produces endurance. It produces character through that endurance and through character it produces hope. And he says in verse 5 here, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I learned to trust in and hope in Jesus, the Savior of my soul, when I feel the pain. If I am secure, what comes to me? What happens there? The eighth thesis here of the theology of the cross, the works of man are mortal sins when they are done without fear and in unadulterated evil security. So, oh darn, if I was totally comfortable, would I really trust my Savior that I need for eternal life? No, of course not. I wouldn't. That's really hard. Let me encourage you a little bit. Does the theology of the cross mean that you're going to suffer your entire life and never smile? And then you have to wait until you get to heaven to be happy ever? Of course not. Now, St. Paul does not say we rejoice in our sufferings in terms of like, yay, I'm so happy, I'm smiling, I got beaten, <laughs> I got thrown in a, in a cistern, hooray! They told me that if I don't offer incense to Caesar, they're going to cut off my head, hooray, wee! It's not like that. It's okay to say this really sucks when it's happening, but rejoicing in this is recognizing the good of it. It doesn't mean you have to be emotionally happy. And the scriptures don't say that you can't be happy at all in life. Like, you have to be suffering. A better way to put it is, in our lives, it's going to be a cycle. God teaches us the theology of the cross by having this cycle of hard times and then relief from the hard times. And then times of uh, blessing, oftentimes, you know, in spite of our material circumstances, sometimes he'll... Uh, deliver us from things like debt or a sickness. He'll answer our prayers and we'll feel that, yes, this is that cycle that teaches me that first there is suffering, then there is reward. And this keeps going in your life until you die or Christ returns. And then we have the final reward of the righteous, our Lord Jesus, having his reward, eternal life imputed to us. Now, if you're confused, by all means, I've talked already a little bit too much on the theology of the cross. Again, it's the hardest topic in theology, at least as far as Lutheranism is concerned. But don't expect that God is going to make you rich or do the health and wealth bit or the name it and claim it stuff when that isn't what Holy Scripture says. Holy Scripture says we're going to suffer and we should do it with, uh, with our heads held high. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, because that's going to make us better. God is going to use that to perfect us and continue us in sanctification. And yes, we do pray for relief from that suffering. That's okay too. That's a good thing. 
Luther may be exaggerating a bit when he talks about, well, seeing the, the good things in your life is not really seeing God. Yes, I believe he's using a little bit of polemics there. Because, yes, if the sun shines after I prayed for a sunny day after a rainy day, I still thank God for giving me that sunny day. It's okay to do that. And is Luther saying we should not pursue good works? No, he's not touching on that. In his disputations with the antinomians, he definitely gets into what we would call the third use of the law. But by our own natural abilities, our free will will only do evil. So, that's what St. Paul's getting at, in a nutshell. A really hard to under understand nutshell, but we should expect pain. We should recognize that it's good because it perfects us, and that brings us closer to our Lord Jesus. Do we make an idol out of pain? Absolutely not. Do we seek pain for its own sake? No. Don't try to make it happen. It'll happen on its own. But at the end of the day, through this life, we say, as St. Paul does in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope doesn't put us to shame. How do you know that God loves you? Because Jesus died for you. How did you find out that God loves you? Because the Holy Spirit, working through the means of word and sacrament, taught that to you and showed it to you through the knowledge he gives us of our Lord Jesus crucified for us. Now, there's other parts of the theology of the cross that get into other topics like justification and can man do any good or add any good by his own works. And St. Paul in this chapter, Romans chapter 5, gives us something of a peek of that. We continue reading in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now what is weakness? Weakness is not having strength to do something. You know, cold is an absence of heat. Weakness is an absence of strength. When we are unregenerate, we are incapable of doing anything good. Now, when we are regenerate, when we are baptized believers in Jesus Christ, we can kind of weakly cooperate with the Holy Spirit in doing good. But when St. Paul then says in verse 6, we were still weak when Christ died for us, he means really incapable of doing anything good before God. So he says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us knowing that we can do no good on our own. In Ephesians chapter 1, St. Paul puts it even more clearly. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does a dead body do? Nothing. <laughs> to God, you were just, you were basically a corpse walking around, unable to save yourself, unable to do anything, paralyzed by your own evil. So, Jesus died for you and in essence frees your will towards the good for one will scarcely die for a righteous person continuing in verse 7 though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners 
Christ died for us. So even more theology of the cross here. We cannot do any good knowing that full well that we are evil, poor, miserable sinners. Jesus comes and dies for us, even though we are evil. And God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The theology of the cross says, you want to know how God loves you? You want proof that God loves you? Look to the man bleeding on the cross with a crown of thorns, with his back flesh hanging in ribbons off of his skin. Look at that. Now, does that look nice? No, this is, Luther says, that the works of God appear evil to humanity. You see a grave injustice done to our Lord Jesus. We see what he went through being punished for being the most righteous man to ever live. But what was happening on that cross was good. What was happening on that cross delivers all of us from our sins. That's how God shows his love for us. And he did it knowing full well that we didn't deserve it. We deserve only wrath. Knowing that, instead of pouring out his wrath on us as we deserve, he sent his son to take that wrath for us. Don't ever question God's love for you. Continuing on, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. St. Paul kind of summarizing the passage thus far. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God made peace through Jesus. His death on the cross ensures that mercy from our God, delivering us from his wrath. His resurrection gives us the grace to have the same resurrection that Jesus received. Encapsulating everything in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, why would you rejoice more than that? You can you rejoice that you're no longer sentenced to, you know, hell, eternal torment. And, oh, look at that. You are instead rewarded. You, you receive Jesus's reward of eternal life. How could you rejoice in anything more? Well, St. Paul says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The key thing here being that reconciling, that peace, and that knowledge that God loves you. You don't have to live an eternal life having to do your taxes every year, having to wake up with a bad back. Let's never confuse the term eternal with just forever. Everyone is going to be alive in some sense forever. Even the damned. Technically, somebody who is burning in hell for all eternity, they are still alive. Absolutely, they have eternal life, if you think of eternal as forever. But is that really what St. Paul is getting at? Like, hooray, I'm gonna live forever. Ow, ow, ow. Ooh, it burns. No, eternal life in Christ is more about quality. You're going to live forever 
with fellowship with the God who loves you, who spares you from any more suffering for all of eternity. You are not going to have to live in eternal life where you have to deal with family troubles, where you have to deal with going to confession every single week because of your sins. You're not going to have to live in the new heavens and new earth going, when is this arthritis finally going to end? It's quality because of the peace that you have with God, one for you by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we rejoice even more knowing that not only are we going to live eternally, but we're living eternally in something good. And I praise God for that, because that's purely by his mercy and his grace poured out upon us. Amen and amen.